This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this U.S. politics edition of the program, will U.S. President Joe Biden's forceful push for voting rights legislation bear fruit? What are the consequences if it fails? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Despite President Biden's forceful speech last week in favor of passing voting rights legislation and for modifying a Senate parliamentary procedure, which usually requires 60 of the 100 senators to agree to advance most legislation, it appears that the push is destined to fail. Democrats believe that the legislation, particularly the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, is necessary to combat a slew of more restrictive regulations passed by 19 Republican state legislatures after the 2020 elections. Here is President Joe Biden speaking in the swing state of Georgia, whose Republican-controlled legislature passed one of those restrictive laws. It's not just here in Georgia. Last year alone, 19 states not proposed, but enacted 34 laws attacking voting rights. There were nearly 400 additional bills Republican members of state legislatures tried to pass. And now Republican legislators in several states have already announced plans to escalate the onslaught this year. Their end game to turn the will of the voters into a mere suggestion, something states can respect or ignore. Jim Crow 2.0 is about two insidious things, voter suppression and election subversion. It's no longer about who gets to vote. It's about making it harder to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote and whether your vote counts at all. There is near unified Republican opposition to passing the two voting rights bills. However, ironically, the primary obstacle to getting the bills passed lies with two Senate Democrats who, while they are in favor of the bills, are against modifying the filibuster rule, which would allow them to pass with a simple majority. Mr. Biden, once an opponent of reforming the filibuster, came out in favor of a so-called carve-out for doing so to pass voting rights legislation, which he deems essential for preserving our democracy. Filibusters have weaponized and abused all the state legislative assaults on voting rights is simple. All you need in your House and Senate is a pure majority. In the United States Senate, it takes a supermajority, 60 votes, even to get a vote instead of 50 to protect the right to vote. State legislators can pass anti-voting laws with simple majorities. If they can do that, then the United States Senate should be able to protect voting rights by a simple majority. Today, I'm making it clear, to protect our democracy, I support changing the Senate rules. Whichever way they need to be changed to prevent a minority of senators from blocking action on voting rights. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has adamantly opposed the Democrats' efforts to approve the voting changes as well as reforming the filibuster for this issue, implying it is a power grab. So between unified Republican opposition to modifying the parliamentary procedure, which has been modified a few times in the past, and two Democratic senators Kirsten Cinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the Biden administration and Democrats are at an insurmountable impasse. 
will joining me via Microsoft Teams to discuss this and other issues on the U.S. political landscape are our veteran political analysts. John Fortier is resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. That's a conservative think tank here in Washington. And Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. That's a center-left policy group also based here in Washington. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Great to be here. Thank you, Carol. And Happy New Year. Well, at the end of last year, John Fortier, we were talking about how the so-called Build Back Better legislation wasn't passing and that Biden was pivoting to voting rights. And here we are. It doesn't look like that pivot has worked very well. Talk about the policy and politics of this move to push for voter rights and this legislation. Yeah, I think you're right, Carol, on the politics. I think Jim and I maybe closed the last time we were on your show by saying things weren't going well on Build Back Better, this large set of spending and tax changes that Democrats were proposing that their own majorities, Joe Manchin in particular, and Kirsten Sinema, another senator, were skeptical of, and so that they were going to pivot to voting rights. I don't think either of us thought that was necessarily a winning issue, and, and it proved not to be. But What's happened is in this interim, things have gone very poorly for the president politically. This is an issue that the base cares about very much. And you had the twin dates of January 6th on the one hand and the other side, Martin Luther King Day, of times where there were a lot of opportunities to raise this issue up to a high level to say we needed these big changes in voting and nationalizing certain voting procedures across the country, which Republicans opposed. But it's turned out not to go well. First of all, their senators, Manchin and Cinema, came out very strongly opposing any changes in the filibuster, therefore meaning that they cannot pass it with a simple majority. And secondly, you saw some division in the base itself. Joe Biden went to Georgia to make a speech and there were a number of Democratic progressives, in particular Stacey Abrams of the state of Georgia, who found a way not to be at the speech, were sort of signaling that they weren't happy that Biden wasn't doing enough, that they weren't getting this done. All of this means that they've failed on this aspect of policy. They're not going to get it through in the future. And I think a bigger point is, while it wasn't looking very good before, the Build Back Better bill, which we moved off of in December, I've always believed that some version of that will get through. And I still think it's possible, but I think it's harder to see that sort of compromise coming out of this big division within the Democratic Party. You add in one last factor that just the atmosphere still is not good for Democrats. So Joe Biden's job approval numbers aren't that great. We're in a very tough COVID and potentially economic situation. You can disagree about this and that. And maybe that will change before the next year's elections. But this is the kind of thing that happens to parties when they're in the White House and Things aren't going so well. There's division, and that often leads to some bad results in the next election. And I, you know, I think these last couple of weeks have certainly not helped and probably hurt Democrats in their cause down the road. Turning to you, Jim Kessler, do you think this pivot to voting rights, which many would say, both of you in particular, was perhaps doomed to fail to begin with, is going to further hurt the Democrats, whether in the midterms and throughout this year with other legislation. Do you have your finger on the pulse of the Democrats, the divisions? Was this a self-inflicted wound, pivoting to voting rights and then trying to modify the filibuster? Yeah, I had low expectations about this, both as a possible policy success and also as a political success for Democrats. And then the execution of this plan has not even reached my low expectations. I do think Democrats have shot themselves in the foot. It's January 2022. In January 2021, these two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, said they weren't changing the filibuster. We knew the outcome of this vote 
12 months ago. And frankly, there are other senators who are skeptical about changing the filibuster, too. So this has been a 12-month slow-motion, you-can-see-it-a-mile-away train wreck coming that is culminating this week. I do believe these are important issues, and there are real legitimate voting rights issues that should be addressed. I also believe that most voters really don't care about this that much, that if you're going to list 10 concerns Voting rights for a lot of voters is probably number 11 or number 12. So this has been a bad week for Democrats. You know, as a partisan myself, I'm hoping that this is the darkness before the dawn. I do believe there is still an avenue to pass the Build Back Better bill in the next couple months that would be a significant achievement. And there are some other more modest voting rights reforms, like the Electoral College reform, in which the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, has signaled some willingness to address that would be significant. So there's opportunities here, but this is a bad week for Democrats, no doubt. Well, turning back to you, John Fortier, on the merits of the two bills, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would reinstate a core provision of the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013, as well as the more expansive Freedom to Vote Act, which would establish national election standards. I think we just have to look at it in context. These bills were proposed and pushed by the Democrats in light of this slew of restrictive voting laws that many Republican states, I believe at least 19, have passed since the 2020 elections. So I just wanted to get your take on you know, the merits of the bills and the concern that the Democrats are voicing that, you know, our democracy is being eroded by these restrictive laws and that some sort of reform is necessary at the national level. What do you say to that? Well, I guess I hear these debates about voting rights and sometimes it's described as a new phenomenon that this is responding to these immediate Republican changes in the states. And while there's some truth to that, I think these are bigger issues that we tend to argue about all the time. Republicans, Democrats have different ideas about what to do in terms of voting. And there's a very important point of the question of federalism, meaning most of our election law is not at the national level, it's at the state level. And interestingly, I think one argument for the filibuster that's particularly useful in the voting rights area is we have passed some laws at the federal level, but partly because of the filibuster, partly because it's hard to tell every state to do the same thing, that we do it when we have some more consensus. And that means, you know, it's compromise legislation. There was voting rights legislation and several renewals. There has been legislation after the 2000 election on voter registration, on military voting, sometimes on funding. There's been a hashing out of a compromise. And I think what Democrats were looking for was a very big set of reforms that would impose their preferred views nationally. And that sort of thing is very hard to get through on a small majority. It's also hard to justify, in a way, getting through without some support from the other side. Obviously, Republicans could come in and change this back in the other direction. So I think this was not realistic, both because of the filibuster, but also because of the ambitions that they had. Yes, this is a little bit of a scaled back bill. They went to Joe Manchin and figured out what he would like better. But each of these issues has been controversial for a long time. Changes to campaign finance and redistricting and mandating that there be certain numbers of days of voting by mail and and early voting. All these things are controversial. The debates are going on at the state level, but putting a national standard on them is very difficult. And so I think, you know, Democrats have had a difficult task in both respects, both politics and the sort of imposing national policy by a national standard that is very hard to do and very rarely done only with compromise, usually. Well, Jim Kessler, it may be very rarely done, but 
Do you agree with many Democrats that these Republican legislatures and the bills they have passed to restrict voting after the 2020 election, do you see some sort of a nefarious hand behind these bills and that the bills have been passed ostensibly to prevent fraud and so forth, but in reality, their impact is to depress the vote primarily among Democratic voters to restrict the number of early voting days, mail-in ballots and others, and that there are other nefarious reasons behind this, which is why Democrats believe in particular it's so important to establish a national standard and at least restore the provisions that the Supreme Court removed from the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I do think that there are nefarious impulses behind them. And I think that these restrictive voting laws in states fall into two different categories. One is kind of the traditional things that you've seen in the past, which is politicians who are in power try and make it easier for their type of people to vote and make it more difficult for people who would vote against them to vote. And so what you're looking at is if there's going to be polling places in places where Republicans are going to win, does it take two minutes to vote? And in places where Democrats have most of the vote, is it going to take two hours to vote? Like it's those sort of things. And those have been a lot of fights on and off and some court cases. And you saw civil rights legislation about that, certainly in the 50s and 60s and Supreme Court cases about that. And then there's another newer type, which is, are you going to allow elected officials or appointed officials of governors or county executives to look at how the vote was done and basically change those votes in some ways or send a different slate of electors to the electoral college certification, you know, after a presidential election? And that is a new front there. And To me, this latter category is the most ripe for federal legislation. It's the newest effort to make elections illegitimate. And I think it is a greater threat to democracy than certain things like how much early voting is there going to be? Because to be honest with you, early voting is that's always been very different in different states, in states like Oregon and Washington state and California, like early voting is the norm. Colorado, it's the norm. In states like New York, that's brand new. It's, you know, rarely been done. And New York is not a state that people talk about in terms of do we need to make massive voting law changes to protect the vote? Because that is not a swing state. So I am more concerned about stuff that fiddles with the results and think that there could be some place where federal action can happen there. We'll have more in just a moment, but first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, from whom you just heard, executive vice president for policy at Third Way, and they join me via Microsoft Teams. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel, VOA, or connect with us on Facebook. Well, back to our show, and let me turn back to you, John Fortier. Just a very quick question, follow-up to Jim Kessler, when he talked about what he's very concerned about is that some of these restrictive laws would affect the way you know votes are tallied, counted, and the Republican legislatures could fiddle with you know with the results. There's something called the Electoral Count Act, that many Republicans have been talking about. Does that have something to do with, would that help in that regard? What is that Electoral Count Act and how would that improve 
the situation to mollify both Democrats and maybe some concerned Republicans? Well, there's a long history, but the short version is uh, if you wanted to pick perhaps our worst election in terms of contentiousness and I was wrong, it was the 1876 presidential election, election which really was almost not decided until two days before Inauguration Day and great, great controversy between the sides. This was a bill passed after that to try to deal with some of those issues that came up in that election. It took them actually 10 years to pass the bill because it was complicated. It is very arcane. It deals with issues like how Congress counts the vote when it meets on January 6th and how the electors cast their ballots. I do think that there is some room for reform there and there should be good things to do. I caution people that I think there are a lot of actors in this sphere here and that the law itself doesn't prevent every change from other actors acting on this. So I don't think it's going to be a universal type of solution. I will note Republicans have indicated, especially Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, that they are interested in that. We'll see. I think there probably is some room for some modest reform there. I think some Democrats think, well, they're bringing that up as a way to deal with one set of issues, but not another. But I do think that there are some things to be thought about, about what we do about all the mechanisms of the Electoral College. Most of them are usually behind the scenes, thankfully, but were certainly brought to the fore this last election on January 6th. So yes, let's reform it. But I guess I don't want to raise people's hopes that it will be a dramatic change that will fix all problems. What's your take on the Electoral Count Act? Does that have anything to do with what you were referring to, Jim Kessler? I do think so. I mean, I think that could matter. If, if you want to try and avoid a future January 6th of the world, what can you do at this point? I mean, the greatest threat to our democracy, I believe, is Donald Trump and his legitimate election would be a threat to our democracy. But his illegitimate election would be the end of our democracy. And the insurrection that you saw on January 6th, the stop the steal, the big lie, and the belief by the president of the United States and spreading the message far and wide that Mike Pence, the vice president, could simply wave his hand and overturn the results, you know, that caught fire in America. So, you know, look, I would love to see the John Lewis Voting Rights Act bill pass. I think these are important reforms and it would make a difference in this country. I also know they're not going to pass. So what can be done to prevent the very worst of the worst thing happening to our democracy and a version of the Electoral Count Act that would prevent this type of subterfuge is probably the limits of what we could do. And I also think it would matter. Well, back to you, John Fortier. Speaking of January 6th, we recently commemorated this uh, horrific anniversary of the insurrection, the attack on the U.S. Capitol and U.S. democracy. And the special committee to investigate January 6th has approached minority leader of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, who presumably would know quite a bit about former President Trump's state of mind. He spoke with him during the riot, told him to call it off, call off his mob, so to speak. But he has refused to testify. The Justice Department has arrested and charged in federal court with seditious conspiracy the founder of the Oath Keepers, because he is among 11 defendants accused of helping to instigate violence at the Capitol. And so it looks like some progress is being made to get to the bottom of it. What's your take on many Republicans who at the time denounced this horrific act and also criticized former President Trump for his potential role, who are now sort of saying, oh, let's move on. Uh, this is not legitimate. This is a witch hunt or something of the nature. 
Look, I don't have anything good to say about what happened on January 6th. Obviously, violence and uh, attack on the Capitol during an important procedure to finalize an election result, encouragement or lack of ability to discourage these people by the president. You know, I would say even continuing on the debate about the election after the electors met in December. I mean, up to then, perfectly legitimate to um, challenge in court and in other ways the results in each state. But even if you think you were on the wrong side of it and unfairly, there's a time to make those challenges and a time not to. So there are a lot of bad things to say. That being said, I think you can blame one side or the other, but there's a sense that the investigation is certainly not going forward on a bipartisan basis. Republicans are unhappy. They think that it's not being done fairly for them. And you know, I think politically, if we see the Virginia elections, the election of Glenn Youngkin back in the fall, where a strong focus on Donald Trump, a strong focus on the sort of anti-democratic tendencies of Republicans, that's something Democrats, I think, strongly believe in, they're worried about. And yet, I think the politics of that going forward or being overly focused on that is probably not going to serve Democrats that well. So I think voters, whether they want to move on or not, maybe some still don't like it very much, but in electoral terms, they want to hear more about what to do about our current situation. And I do think Democrats, while they're of course going to investigate and things will come out of this, I think if they're going to run their campaigns in the fall on these sort of issues, I think it's not going to help them. Turning to you, Jim Kessler, do you think that the January 6th committee isn't investigating on a bipartisan basis? I mean, there are two Republicans, albeit Republicans who aren't Trump Republicans, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. But what's your take about how the committee is approaching their writ? Pitt have also spoken and asked for Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, to uh, testify, and he has refused. I mean, what does that say? If he has nothing to hide, why would he do that? Or do you think that as many Republicans are saying, and even as John Fortier alluded, that maybe it's just not perceived as being a bipartisan committee? Let me run through some of those questions real quick. I think the uh, January 6th committee is doing an excellent job and they're bipartisan enough. And the reason why they're not more bipartisan is the Republicans' fault. As for Kevin McCarthy, you know, he's refusing to testify, same with some other Republicans. Yes, they do have something to hide. That's the reason why they're refusing to testify. And even if you're held in contempt of Congress, usually the damage to you is reputational, not criminal. And frankly, they don't care about the reputational damage because the Republican Party has gone so far off the deep end on this that within their own party, this is not a problem for them. The last thing, and I think the most important thing that I want to say about this is for Republicans, This is an audition for Donald Trump. So what nearly every Republican is doing on January 6th or how they are phrasing what happened on that day or about the election for nearly all of them is they have realized that Donald Trump is still in control of the Republican Party. They are certain that he is going to be the nominee in 2024. There's a 50-50 chance that he is going to be the president in 2025 and they want to be in his good graces. And at the very least, they do not want to be in the crosshairs and be his enemy. So this is a party that I think there are some true loyalists to Donald Trump. There is a group that is becoming extinct of anti-Trump Republicans like Cheney and Kinzinger. And then there is a group of, I think, traditional Republicans who are kind of keeping their head down and hoping that it goes away and mouthing the right words for the country when possible and the right words to appeal to Donald Trump when possible. And those folks are deluding themselves. And I believe they're cowards. 
frankly. And so this is a party of Trump loyalists and I think a party of a lot of cowards right now. But I'm not sure if the voters really care that much. And this may or may not be a voting issue. It won't be in 2022. It may or may not be in 2024. Well, gentlemen, we will see and we will discuss that and many other issues on our next edition of the U.S. Politics Edition of Encounter. But I'm afraid for now, that is all the time we have on this edition of the program. I'd like to thank my guest, John Fortier. He's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. Gentlemen, as always, thanks for a terrific and lively conversation. You bet. Thank you. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. 